Thank you. It's a pleasure being here. And um, I cannot emphasize the great uh, working relationship with uh, Chris and Sylvia, uh, uh, particularly in CMT clinic, but uh, many other fields. So these are the um, doctors, physicians behind the disease. Um, Charcot is, is uh, known as a uh, founder of modern neurology. Charcot was a French physician. He was an internist, actually, and uh, he had several uh, descriptions, discoveries. Many um, uh, conditions are named after him, including this disease. And his student was uh, Pierre Marie, um, and they um, had a paper in, 19, in 1866 uh, describing an amyotrophy, which uh, basically uh, muscle wasting. Um, poor Henry Tooth was an army physician in the British Army, serving in South Africa, but probably had time for pathological studies. He was born there, probably. And uh, he presented in the, on the same year in the British Medical Council the pathology of nerve diseases. So that's how he became actually the third person. Um, Charcot-Marie Tooth disease is, a, is an inherited disease of the peripheral nerve. Peripheral nerve is, is a very delicate structure. The axons of central and motor neurons uh, uh, send the longest uh, processes in the body, uh, sometimes reaching several feet. Um, it is wrapped around um, a myelin sheet produced by uh, Schwann cells in segments. Uh, early on, people thought that actually this myelin sheet gives uh, a, um, a structural uh, protection of the long axons, but actually the the most uh, and the best function of these is to provide a saltatory conduction. Uh, so Renvier node is where all the depolarization uh, 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 happens, and the upper panel shows the different uh, ion channels, gap junctions, uh, stained by beautifully by different antibodies, uh, showing that this is a very delicate uh, uh, structure and involves many different uh, um, um, proteins and, and uh, uh, genes. Uh, so when a problem occurs in the peripheral nerve, either we lose myelin sheet or we lose axons. And, um, but sometimes the problem is combined. So CMT is probably the most prevalent inherited neuro neurological disease, the one in 2,600. It still counts as a rare disease because uh, in the U.S. probably there are uh, about 150,000 uh, people affected by this. Uh, disease. It is um, estimated by over a very prominent uh, uh, Australian neurologist, Australian neurologist uh, uh, that probably all, one-third of all neuromuscular pediatric cases are um, uh, charcomary tooth uh, uh, patients. Uh, the onset is very variable, but uh, many times happens even shortly after um, uh, birth, even if, if it's not recognized. Um, Ovrier also predicted that probably the, the demyelinating and axonal forms uh, uh, occurs about one to one, but this is debated a little bit. The typical um, presentation, if you think about when the nerve gets uh, diseased, the longer the nerve, the more problem it causes in distally. So we see distal muscle wasting. These are quite extreme pictures, but it's just showing the clawing of the hand, um, the muscle atrophy, distal atrophy, that causes uh, um, uh, gait difficulties, balance problem, uh, foot and skeletal abnormalities, cavus or uh, flat foot, and painless, I want to emphasize, painless sensory deficit. 
Um, in the infantile form, it's the typical presentation is like many other neuromuscular diseases, a floppy infant with loss of reflexes. There are two major forms. One is the hypomyelating form, and actually myelin sheet doesn't even happen. And the other one is the hypertrophic when the uh, overgrowth of the Schwann cells uh, causes the enlarged nerve roots that shows up on the MRI. And this patient, uh, it shows the uh, clawing of the hand. So just a couple of um, um, differential diagnostic uh, entities. Um, they are acquired neuropathies. Uh, they are acute, but we are more considering the chronic Guillain-Barre type of uh, 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 disease, the C uh, chronic inflammatory demyelinopathy. Um, uh, floppy infants can uh, be um, motor neuron disease, but uh, remember that uh, those are more proximal weakness than distal weakness. Um, the free glycotaxy is a difficult differential diagnosis, but because it causes absent reflexes, a posterior column disease, but the most prominent features are balance and cerebral signs. Uh, the most common um, acquired toxic neuropathy we see in this hospital is uh, chemotherapy-related toxic neuropathies. Um, electrodiagnostic is, is still um, uh, the number one test that we do for when we sus suspect neuropathy because it gives a good objective finding. Two things we look at uh, most typically, or three major uh, things, uh, and Dr. Eng back there would agree with me, that one is the nerve conduction. So when we measure uh, two, um, the uh, two, uh, velocity between two triggers points and uh, measure the uh, muscle response uh, called compound muscle action potential. So we can see a delayed uh, motor conduction or uh, sh uh, smaller amplitudes uh, in various forms of uh, the Charcot-Marie tooth disease. And the other finding is the needle examination shows uh, in some forms of uh, Charcot-Marie tooth disease uh, denervation in the muscle. So altogether, the pathology and the electrophysiological findings divide two major types of uh, uh, Charcot-Marie tooth disease, the demyelinating form and the myelin is... Uh, uh, degraded, and the typical um, hallmark is the loss of the myelin sheet and onion bulb formation on pathological specimens. The onion bulb is the proliferation of the Schwann cells and showing this structure but not forming myelin. So in that um, type of demyelinating uh, neuropathy, we have uh, uniformly uh, uh, slowed conductions, distal latencies, uh, prolonged F waves, but the a compound muscle action potential is actually uh, normal or close to normal. In terms of axonal neuropathy, when the prob primary problem is the axon, you still see the myelin formations, but the axon get degenerated. There are axonal bulb formations and the uh, nerve fiber section. The nerve conduction velocity is uh, normal, close to normal, but the, the evoked uh, amplitudes, uh, uh, sensory and motor are reduced is an intermediate form of uh, this. So uh, we divide the uh, Charcot-Marie tooth disease based on inheritance and genetics. Um, type 1 and 2 are dominant disorders. Type 1 is demyelinating, type 2 is axonal. Um, there's an uh, X-link form, which is CMTX. Type 3 is the severe infantile form of Charcot-Marie tooth disease. And CMT4 is all recessive, which can be also axonal or demyelinating. <clears throat> there are epinyms uh, similar. Some countries don't use Charcot-Marie tooth disease. 
they use a hereditary uh, sensory motor neuropathy or HSM and, uh, uh, for this uh, condition. Um, the, uh, genetically, CMT is a heterogeneous disorder. There are now more than 100 genes identified, but what I want to emphasize uh, in a demyelinating, uh, um, uh, demyelinating form of dominant disease, seven, I want to focus on CMT type 1A because 70-80% of the all patients basically uh, have this abnormality, which is a, a duplication of uh, PMP22 peripheral myelin protein on chromosome 17. And um, uh, what is the as of interest? That, so there's a dosage problem. Too much uh, peripheral myelin protein causes problem in the myelin sheet. But also a point mutation as, uh, causes CMT1E of the same gene. And interestingly, it can be even more severe than the type 1A. Uh, when we go to um, the type 2, um, uh, which is a dominant axonal, 50% of the patient have type 2A, which is a mutation in uh, mitofusin. Mitofusin um, is an important protein for mitochondrial fission and uh, um, fusion. So it's a, basically a, a mitochondrial axonal disease um, that uh, uh, consists of 50% uh, of type 2 patients. Um, this is just a depict of showing the different genes at the different locations, but I want to emphasize, so it, it can be localized, the uh, different uh, proteins uh, in the axon, myelin, or the cell body of the neurons, uh, but the key biological functions that cause a CMT is either the compaction and uh, uh, organization of the myelin sheet, um, uh, reindeer node uh, physiological problems or axonal transport. So just quickly uh, recapping, if you suspect um, uh, peripheral neuropathy, you like to do an EMG. If the EMG is uh, showing demyelinating form, uh, you can just do one gene test, DMP22, which will discover 80% of the patient. If the um, uh, EMG shows axonal form, if you do one gene is uh, mitofusin, you will discover 50% of the patients. Now, rare occasions that you have uh, CMTX, then you can go to that one gene called a gap junction protein. Genes abnormal, then you can go for a whole genome, uh, uh, a selective screening of a CMT gene panel, which is not commercially, it scans about 50, uh, 70 uh, genes. This is just uh, a depict of our own patient population a couple of years ago showing that 63% of our patients were the dominant demyelinating from CMT1A and 20% were the, are the CMT2. And there still we had about, with even extensive genetic testing, about 6% of the patient had no genetic diagnosis but electrophysiologically proven CMT. Um, so the field was really uh, not moving forward until about 10 years ago because there was no natural history uh, examination, no validated outcome measures. Routine physical examination does not detect yearly changes of this disease, and so there were no um, uh, description of what kids do over years. The condition is slowly progressive, but it is progressive and we didn't have any longitudinal data. So at the end of the presentation, I will show what we do now.
compare what we didn't do uh, so many years ago. And these are the different measures, strengths, um, walking, uh, sensory examination, balance, that can give us uh, functional measurements that we will discuss. But I will uh, give the opportunity to Chris to talk about what we did. So the orthopedic presentation, you know, we love to have uh, a simple problem, broken bone, fix it. You go to the textbook and you, you learn what to do. So when it comes to the textbook description in orthopedics for CMT, we know that the intrinsic muscles tend to weaken. So your long extensors tend to pull more than your short extensors, like your extensor digitorum brevis or extensor hallucis brevis, and that would result in climb. That makes sense. And we know that our peroneus brevis and our anterior tibialis tend to be more affected than the peroneus longus and posterior tib. So if your posterior tib is pulling a little more than your peroneus brevis, it would make sense that you have a medial pull of a hindfoot varus. If your peroneus longus is pulling a little more than your anterior tib, your peroneus longus plantar flexes your first ray, it can sort of explain some of the um, deformities. So there's these you know, de textbook descriptions of CMT, pes cavus, this high arch foot, or these claw toes and deformities. We think about forefoot equinus or adductus, where the you know, forefoot is pointed down and high arched and hind foot varus. So it seems pretty simple. We talk about these gait disturbances, like a drop foot with excessive equinus, or this steppage gait where you have to step over this floppy foot or plantar flexed foot, or to swing your leg around and circumduct to clear. Pretty straightforward. But what we've also learned is not everyone reads the textbook, not every patient fits the textbook, and in our clinical experience, persons with CMT do not all have the same clinical presentation, and therefore there's a variety of gait patterns and deformities and complaints, and it doesn't just fit neatly into, if you have type one, you look like this, if you have type two, you look like this. So we start to see all these different patterns out there. And when they walk into your office, some of these patients don't even know they have CMT, and you just start to see deformities or complaints or patterns, and that's what we're looking at. So we realize you have to understand the problem before you can treat it. And so you, when you listen to the patients, they're complaining about things like pain or clumsiness or shoe complaints or tripping, um, weakness. Uh, on their physical exam, they you may pick up strength differences or look at their range of motion and look at their calluses on their feet and their sensation and vibratory sensation. And we could do the tests like the EMG and the nerve conduction. We could take x-rays and see these deformities. But really, gait analysis has helped us have a really objective assessment of their function. And more importantly, we can look at pre- and post-treatment to see what treatments really can help, um, and in particular, hopefully finding things if they didn't help, not to do them again. So the orthopedic options, you know, what can we do for treatments? Well, we can strengthen, and I'll argue most patients can benefit from some sort of strengthening. Bracing's an option, and many will benefit from bracing. Surgery, some. There are some that may actually benefit from surgery. And often it's a combination of all these treatments, and hopefully in the future we'll have even better things. So when it comes to strengthening, you'd say, well, it's a pro progressive peripheral neuropathy. Things will get worse. Is it even worth doing? Well, we know that um, when patients identified with CMT in the adult clinics, they'll report, the majority certainly, that weakness of their feet is one of their major problems, and it has a, one of the greatest impacts on their quality of life. So we you know it's a weakening disorder. That's not all that surprising. Um, the question is, what's the efficacy and the safety of strength training in a neuromuscular disorder? Well, it turns out it's actually pretty good. 
Um, the optimal exercise modality and the intensity is debatable, but studies have certainly shown that with resistance training, you can increase some strength and improve ADLs in adults. It's been shown in kids. Um, a six-month targeted program with resistance training has been shown to give some delay in the progression of weakness and uh, hasn't really resulted in overwork fatigue in, in the muscles being trained. And you can do a self-directed uh, strengthening program. So will it cure CMT? Of course not. Can it help delay progression and help some function? Yes. So I would argue the majority of patients can benefit from uh, home exercises or formal PT. But when strength training isn't enough, we have other decision-making to work on. So we look at this context of gait phenotypes. And working from left to right, we sort of have the flail foot, which is kind of global weakness, not necessarily muscle pull and imbalance. It's just such weakness that the foot tends to be fairly floppy and flail. The cavo varus foot that sort of fits that textbook description of hind foot varus, high cavus, clawing toes, and then the equinus foot or ankle, which can be our um, least uh, aggressive, least weak component, um, often presents as just toe walking, and not every patient shows up in the office stamped with a diagnosis uh, known. So these are the three phenotypes that I'll be talking about as we target our treatment, flail foot, cavovarus, and the equinus. When we think about treat, we like to think in this framework of what does it take to have normal gait, um, the prerequisites of typical gait in order to walk from point A to point B, our walking or gait needs to have stability and stance. You have to have a good planetary on the ground for stability. Ideally, you can swing and clear, not trip yourself, not trip over your own feet. You'd like to appropriately pre-position that foot. You want to be able to swing your knee straight, put your heel down on the ground, get that foot ready for stance at initial contact. Ideally, have a nice step length so you can cover a lot of ground and use the least amount of energy possible. Wouldn't that be awesome? and we all pretty much walk the same. If we all got up and walked, our gait would be very, very similar. So when we look at these gait patterns, the flail foot, if you look at this patient here, notice the foot is, thinking about your prerequisites of gait, can this patient have a stable base of support and stance? Probably not. Are they able to pre-position for initial contact and get that heel you know, right out in the ground? No. Um, swing phase clearance, that foot would be easy to trip over. You can imagine this patient complaining of tripping and falling. And you know, their energy consumption is going to take more because they have to come up with some compensations to clear and, and get this foot around. So this particular foot pattern, you know, with all these things are compromised. Your stability and stance, your swing phase clearance, pre-positioning, step length. We're seeing these complaints, these issues. And so our treatment is to address these compromised issues. When you have weak plantar flexors, your foot can't push against the ground to put, drive yourself up and keep you upright. So you have instability in stance, and you pretty much stay on that heel. You hang. You don't want to roll that shin forward because you can't push that foot against the ground to hold you up. So our, our, all of our uh, force sort of hangs out at the heel, and the patient doesn't bring their pressure out over that forefoot because hang on that heel, and they'll eventually take that next step. So the best treatment for a flail foot isn't really muscle balancing because there's really no strength to balance. It's bracing this foot. A nice solid foot orthosis, an ankle foot orthosis, can support the stance and swing phases of gait. And surgery in the orthopedic world here is really designed if the foot is no longer braceable. 
because bracing is going to be our mainstay of treatment for the flail foot. Um, when you put the uh, brace on, a hinge isn't going to do you much good. You don't want that shin coming over the front of that foot too quickly. You want to be able to keep that ankle at a nice position and upright in stance to allow weight bearing over that distal part of the foot, provide some stability for the patient during uh, stance, and also keep that toe lifted up for clearance and swing. And when we look at gait analysis, not expecting you guys to be masters in plots, but one of the beauties of gait analysis is we can look at anything to the left side of the uh, graph here is the stance phase of gait. Anything to the right is the swing phase of gait. And we could look at things like the ankle plot at the bottom and the knee plot at the top. And in a barefoot patient with a flail foot, the ankle is dorsiflexing because the shins goes flopping over that foot. And they hang on, hang on, hang on, and at the last minute, their ankle is sort of plantar flexes, and then they step to get it up. And as their ankle's collapsing, their knee's collapsing. They're kind of crouching down. But with a simple, solid AFO, we can control what their ankle does, get them closer to the normal curves, and by fixing one joint upstream, we see nice improvement even at the knee curve. So a nice makeup for that weak flail foot is a simple ankle foot orthosis, solid, not hinged, and can do a lot of good for that patient. When we have that phenotype of the cavoverus foot, now we actually have muscle imbalance as our driving force. So it's not just flail all around. Here we have a foot that is going to compromise certain phases of gait, like stance phase um, stability. They're having a little difficulty pre-positioning. That foot's plantar flexed a little through that cavus midfoot. And these patients often have pain. They may not want to have their foot on the ground in certain positions, or they can't toggle that foot appropriately and you'll notice calluses and pain will be a complaint of many of these patients. So the goal here is getting that foot in a position to improve that stability and ideally reduce their pain. These patients often have those weak um, plantar flexors, so they can't push themselves up against the ground. Their toes start to claw. They have that long toe extensor stronger than their short extensors, and it pulls that foot into deformity. That balance around the heel will see a sort of varus or cavus happening. And these patients often have decent passive range of motion. They may not take advantage of it while they're walking. When their feet are on the ground, we see these abnormal calluses. And if we map them in the lab, we'll see abnormal pressure points. Um, instead of nice distribution of force, we'll see calluses along the lateral ray of their foot, kind of along that fifth metatarsal head. Um, and they'll have less toe contact. So they're not distributing their force as well. When we're treating these patients, we're thinking, well, we have to get a comfortable foot um, in shoes with or without a brace. And these are the ones where we're really focusing on that muscle imbalance. If that perineus longus um, may be stronger than the anterior tib, so that may be the muscle plantar flexing that first ray, dropping that forefoot into cavus, making that really high arch. And in the hind foot, that posterior tib may be inverting the heel more than that Poor weak peroneus brevis can evert it, so we see that foot rolling into varus. And we're thinking in these patients, how can we help benefit that? Well, stretching those tight tissues like the plantar fascia, trying to loosen up that arch would be nice. Strengthening those weaker muscles, if we can do anything to strengthen the everters or the dorsiflexors. Maybe bracing it to control some of that wiggle and woggle. Sometimes these patients are rolling their ankles, spraining their ankles, trying to figure out a brace to help them in their functions. So those non-operative treatments are certainly out there. Um, in a brace in these patients, 
Uh, if we look at their ankle plots, not quite as floppy in that ankle dorsiflexion as our flail feet, but they still have a delay in where they're going to push off. They still have some abnormalities about that ankle dorsiflexion curve. And by adding a, oops, adding a brace, we can pull that curve back a little bit in time so they're not um, having a, it, that exaggerated um, plantar flexion in late stance. And even though the ankle brace does lock up their ankle, we try to maintain some power. We need to generate power by moving our joint. If our brace is too stiff, you may not be able to generate power. So we need a brace that's stiff enough to allow power generation, not so stiff it's just a solid block, um, and allowing that push off for uh, step off. So bracing still is a mainstay even in our um, cable varus feet. But some of these patients will benefit from surgery. And when we're thinking about surgical considerations for cable varus feet, the uh, tight plantar fascia, if we haven't been able to stretch it out, cast it out, really try to loosen the foot up, we can um, surgically release the plantar fascia. And we usually go after the plantar fascia more than anything posteriorly in the Achilles. Because these patients have weak plantar flexors, we don't want to mess back there. But we need that foot to be plantigrade on the ground. The tight, soft tissues, like a tight posterior tib that may be pulling that heel into varus may need to be lengthened. But here it's the art of balancing the soft tissues. Often we'll do tendon transfers with the idea that if our perineus longus is plantar flexing that first ray, if we swing it out laterally, it may help a little with eversion. More importantly, it won't increase the risk of recurrence. If we um, take the uh, extensor halysis and move it back, Instead of clawing the toes, the extensor halysis longus may help lift our first ray so we can transfer it back towards the metatarsals. Um, and then our anterior tibialis that tends to supinate and swing that foot inward, we can move it over. So it can help balance the foot knowing that these muscles over time will slowly degenerate and progress, but we can help set that foot in a good position and slow down the progression into recurrence of those deformities. If the soft tissues have gotten so tight and the foot's so deformed, soft tissue surgery alone may not be enough, then we may have to start breaking bones or doing osteotomies to bring that foot around. And in particular, dorsiflexing or lifting that first ray through a metatarsal osteotomy or swinging that hind foot and forefoot over with these sort of closing um, osteotomies to take away that kidney bean-shaped foot. And when all else fails, sometimes we actually have to fuse the joints. If the foot is so deformed and stiff, will actually lock it in a new position with joint fusions or arthrodeses. In these, um, if we do these surgeries correctly, hopefully we can take these pressure points in calluses and help redistribute that foot positioning better. And our gait analysis can see our pre and post-op data showing a better distribution of force, less pain, and easier walking ability. Our toe walkers, our third phenotype, that sort of equinus foot, these patients tend to be the strongest. Um, they may actually present as just a toe walker. They may not even know they have CMT or a true uh, progressive um, neuropathy. And these patients, when they walk, what is going wrong with them? Well, they're having problems with stability and stance because they're up on their toe. They don't have a nice full distribution of force across the foot. They may have difficulty pre-positioning for initial contact because they can't get that heel on the ground to take their step. And they may have swing phase clearance because their foot's pointed down and they may trip. Now, they won't describe these things, but these are the things we see. 
So our goal here is get a plantigrade foot, get that foot flat on the ground to take care of these problems of gait. So if you are a toe walker, you have poor stability and stance and a limited base of support, but you're pretty strong and your overall range of motion may not be that bad through the ankle. It's often more through the forefoot and a cavacy type foot. So for these patients, often we can observe just with growth, if a young child comes in on their toe, just with body weight and time, sometimes they'll come down as their plantar flexors weaken, sometimes they will just come down on their own as well. So observing these patients in the short term is sometimes all we do. If they're really tight and we want to bring that foot up, we can stretch with home stretching, physical therapy type exercises, night bracing to sort of lift that foot and stretch it up, stretch that plantar fascia. Often we'll bring them into the office and put them in stretching casts to really help stretch out that plantar fascia in hind foot. Sometimes these kids will benefit from day bracing, but often they're so highly functional, they don't need the day brace and they actually won't comply and wear it because they don't see the benefit. If we have to bump it up a notch and do surgery, we'll often do plantar fascia surgery, and that's usually where we'll re release rather than posteriorly at the Achilles because we don't want to further weaken their plantar flexors. And the worst case scenario is we'll do some sort of osteotomy to bring the forefoot up to line up with the hind foot. So here's a case of a patient who's in relaxed standing, cannot get that heel down on the ground, their plantar flexed, and that poor arch is so tight that just with a plantar fascia release, we can get that foot flat on the ground. And what we look at here is a toe walker early on, and with just a plantar fascia release, and granted years of time, this is 10 years in between, but they haven't been over weakened by anything too aggressive surgically, they can have a you know, plantar grade basis support and maintain a good foot function without calluses and pain. So this type of patient in the gait lab, what we would see preoperatively, if we look at an ankle curve that should undulate nicely, this poor foot is plantar flexed in both stance and swing, which can't generate as much ankle power because you don't have the range of motion to do it. If we do a plantar fascia release, we're able to get more of an undulating ankle position and we still can maintain some power. So we can look objectively pre and post-op and decide was that the right operation for this patient and therefore we can take this on to other patients. So in summary, when we're thinking about orthopedic considerations, we need to think of the prerequisites of typical gait, what's compromised, figure out where are the impairments at the joint level and what are the associated gait deviations, hopefully define our treatment options with a clear indication, and also always realize it's a progressive disorder we don't want to burn a bridge, and treatment needs to be considered within this context. And the more we think about it, the more questions we come up with, so we tackle some research. And I'll let Sylvia talk about what's going on in that world. Um, thanks very much. I'm excited to explain to you a little bit about the um, motion analysis-based research that's taking place at Connecticut Children's on Youth with CMT. Um, our overall research goal is to optimize orthopedic surgical treatment of gait-related disability in youth with CMT in the context of the natural progression of gait, because you need to understand that in order to understand surgery, surgical outcomes. Therefore, we need to measure walking gait, and comprehensive motion analysis, as Dr. Kears has mentioned, um, allows us to do that. Comprehensive motion analysis is a systematic and objective documentation of gait in terms of joint angles or kinematics, 
joint moments and powers or kinetics or muscle activity, and we need to do that in the context of the joint level impairments of each patient, so their weakness, their contracture, and their bony deformities. And we can reflect these on a kinematic plot, as you see here. This is a classic plot that would show ankle plantar flexor weakness outcomes in terms of the ankle function during gait. We are very fortunate at Connecticut Children's Medical Center to have the Center for Motion Analysis, which was established in 1981 at Newington Children's Hospital. We have ha completed over 10,000 motion analysis tests on over 6,000 patients in, during that time. And we have over 500 people in our um, reference database from age 4 to 80. And we've done much more than gait in that um, lab. So this reflects a huge level of experience and understanding of gait pathology. So understanding outcomes in orthopedic surgical intervention in adolescents with CMT will help clarify surgical indications which will benefit future patients, allow providers to offer evidence-based information to patients and families about expectations for surgical outcomes, and ultimately will allow better prediction of prognosis for future ambulatory ability, and that is every parent's question. So our first step, like we were in CP almost 40 years ago, is we need to document the deformity in, in pediatrics. And we did that in our first publication on 33 patients to examine gait patterns in CMT. As you just learned, is that peripheral neuropathy and ankle plantar flexor weakness is one of the biggest issues for this group. So peak dorsiflexion and terminal stance is a manifestation of plantar flexor weakness. So I'm going to focus on this parameter of the many. It's commonly affected in these patients, and it's relevant because it's an outcome of plantar flexor weakness and contracture. So through this research, we defined the three groups that Dr. Pierce just talked about, patients with increased peak dorsiflexion and stance, normal peak dorsiflexion and stance, and less than normal peak dorsiflexion and stance. So patients fell with, into one of these three groups, and all of them had delayed peak dorsiflexion and stance, a manifestation of plantar flexor weakness. So as you've seen, this has become the basis for our treatment um, guidelines. So our current research questions, can and how does orthopedic surgery improve gait? What is the natural progression of gait and decline in CMT? And does CMT type relate to gait patterns in terms of decline in surgical outcomes? We're also interested in AFO outcomes and if there's a correlation between the joint level impairment and gait findings. So Rachel Kennedy in 2016 in a uh, journal of peripheral nervous system published an article entitled Gait in Children and Adolescents with CMT, a Systematic Review. And this really summarizes the, the knowledge in terms of gait to date. There's very little information on surgical outcomes, actually one paper. There's no information on disease progression with respect to gait, and there's no information on the implication of CMT type with respect to gait. There are only five papers with, that have comprehensive gait analysis techniques, of which we had one. So really, we have a lot to learn. So our clinical experience suggests that a systematic review of surgical outcomes is needed so that we can um, refine surgical indications and improve treatment outcomes. And this is illustrated nicely in this two-patient example. Here we have great changes from pre to post in relationship to normal as the curves go up in stance and swing. And in this particular case, we have increased peak dorsiflexion post treatment. So there are some, although the treatment has benefited that patient in terms of pain and brace wear and so forth, we have introduced maybe a, a, a downside in terms of their ankle function. So why did that happen in that patient? So we have a currently prospective study. Uh, we have a surgical group and a natural history group. Basically, everybody's in the natural history group, and if they need surgery, we have pre and post motion analysis, and then we continue those motion analyses over time at about a two-year interval. 
We are collecting the CMTPs, which is a global measure of disability, and Dr. Exadi will explain that in more detail in a minute. We currently have 36 participants. So to look at our surgical outcomes, we now have a group of 14 um, in the surgical group and 14 in our natural history group. Again, back to that peak ankle dorsiflexion and stance. The mean values pre and post surgery actually show no change statistically. So that's suggesting that these bony surgeries at the feet are, are doing well at the ankle. However, if we look at our individual patients, we have 10 sides that are increased, six that are the same, and seven that go in the opposite direction. And if we look at our reference group, over that two-year period, peak dorsiflexion in terminal stance goes from 17 to 17. So as Dr. Ashadi mentioned, it's not a very rapidly progressive disease. However, there are differences. In 10 patients, it showed a significant increase. There was no change in another 10 and decreased in eight or size. So this question becomes, why are some patients functioning different than others? And many obviously benefit from orthopedic surgery, but surgical results are variable in terms of the ankle function. So our question has become, can CMT type help explain some of these, this variation? So our next step was to look at CMT type in the limited data set that we have to date. Um, we don't have enough in terms of the surgical group, so we're going to look at presentation and gait decline um, over time in these patients to help us understand why someone walks like this on the left and walks like that on the right. Is it based on CMT type? So we currently have 36 patients to look at this. They were divided into two groups at this time. CMT1 is 26 and CMT2, 10. This shows an example of the two sort of general presentations. On the left side, we have CMT1 and their associated gait function, and on the right, CMT2. And you can see that there is greater weakness on the CMT2 patient that's patient that's manifested a little more objectively in terms of our gait, kinematics, and kinetics in comparison to the normal band here. These patterns reflect greater weakness in the plantar flexors and dorsiflexors in the CMT2 patient. Our results show that patients with CMT2 presented earlier with their gait problems. That is a younger age. They have greater weakness in their ankle plantar flexors and dorsiflexors. In terms of their gait implications, this impacts their ankle and their prerequisites of typical gait with increased inquiryness and swing and increased dorsiflexion and stance. CMT2 patients also had associated gait issues with increased flexion of the knee and stance and increased um, flexion of the hip and swing, which means they have this steppage gait pattern. So maybe this is what's explaining some of these differences. In terms of treatment implications, all our research is gained or directed towards trying to improve treatment. This suggests that patients with CMT2 may benefit earlier from AFO prescription and unfortunately may also need surgery earlier to maintain that comfortable AFO prescription if the bony deformity of the foot does not allow comfortable AFO fit. So then that led to our next um, um, question. Our goal is to better understand how AFOs impact gait so we can provide optimal um, brace prescriptions. Now, if you can see in this case example here, a barefoot versus brace on a young um, male with CMT, it is a really important treatment modality for these patients. Our clinical experience shows, however, that orthosis design has to be optimized to meet the patient's need. And so we systematically reviewed barefoot and brace conditions for those patients that were wearing braces. Our preliminary data clearly shows, and a focus on the walking velocity here, that braces across the board increase walking velocity towards a normal 
walking velocity. This is significant because this represents function. These kids can better keep up with their peers and have less fatigue as a result. So great outcomes for braces. Now let's go back to our parameter, peak dorsiflexion and terminal stance. This is barefoot walking, and we can see in comparison to normal, the peak dorsiflexion implant and stance, this is the normal bar in the yellow, is greater than normal in many of these patients. Manifestation, again, of the plantar flexor weakness. These same patients in their braces show some patients that show improvement in that parameter, but many that do not. So there is a large variation in AFO designs used for youth with CMT. They came in PLSs, solids, FROs, and hinged designs. However, the AFO design did not always match the functional goal of that brace. It didn't, if it was a solid AFO, it wasn't always functioning as a solid AFO. And the AFO design was not always the most appropriate for that particular patient. So with this work, we've developed and are developing brace guidelines. The hinged AFO is not an effective brace for patients, patients with CMT who have plantar flexor weakness because they can't have that benefit of stability over the distal aspect of their foot. The PLS and solid AFO can be very beneficial for these patients, but they have to match the patient's particular impairments in terms of their plantar flexor weakness as well as their plantar flexor contracture, which is also another common finding. So in the future, this is preliminary. We're very excited about these results, but we need to do more. We are recruiting more patients right now. This is a rare disease, so recruitment needs to probably be much broader than this institution. I want to acknowledge the uh, Harold and Rebecca Gross Foundation who have generously um, provided the support for this work. We have one more piece. Um. I tried the last five minutes to talk about our multidisciplinary approach uh, for in the clinic. We started a CMT clinic uh, three years ago with uh, three clinics uh, a year. Now we are increasing it to um, every other month and because of the increased uh, number of patients and interest. And we uh, collect uh, information in participation of an international consortium. Um, this multidisciplinary clinic includes uh, these uh, professionals that are integral part of the clinic uh, to provide uh, the, the best uh, assessment and uh, treatment approach. I was fortunate enough before actually I moved here at Wayne State uh, to be a co-PI for the initial uh, grant for the consortium. Um, uh, Mike Shai was the lead investigator and one expert from uh, UK and one from uh, Australia decided to form this consortium with an NI support to uh, recognize that there's so much need to be learned about uh, Charcot-Marie Tooth disease. My role was to really to uh, uh, have the pediatric arm of this whole project. The, the goals were uh, collecting natural history to establish outcome measures across the age groups and uh, the, to do basic science and basic research to see what are the different uh, um, the genetic abnormalities, what are the different biological functions towards uh, finding the new treatments. Um, CMT uh, was worked out while I was working there and published uh, in uh, uh, 2012. This uh, was a, a, a very well validated uh, outcome measure from uh, age uh, 3 to 20. The, out the adults uh, uh, CMT uh, system was already um, established by that time. It includes a multifaceted um, 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 uh, assessment tool uh, which uh, focuses on strength, balance, sensation, motorability, 
dexterity and does not include EMG testing, which is included in the adult because of the difficulty getting subsequent EMGs all the time with these patients. This was our first poster. I just highlighted this. I'm going to go to the details. We have a, a, a one-page scoring system. The whole test gets 45 minutes in, uh, after training. The next uh, step was, which uh, already happened while I was, uh, we were working here, the infant scale, because recognizing rare but uh, infant patients, and uh, this uh, was developed recently um, um, in the consortium and just being published now in December um, in Brain as uh, the editor's choice uh, uh, about this uh, scale. Um, this uh, looks like uh, uh, the, the one-page assessment tool um, that, that is going on uh, with the infant scale. The consortium includes uh, only about 15 sites. It's very not evenly distributed, but I think it follows the population. We are probably one of the only pediatrics, uh, out of the four international sites, only for pediatrics. Um, the, um, uh, the, con the work here generated a lot of already abstracts and uh, a uh, few publications, definitely we need to, as uh, we gain data, uh, we need to publish more data. One thing is, unfortunately, that even though it's a grant-supported program, there's no money coming uh, for our effort. It's all um, uh, billing and all institutional. There's no money flying uh, in uh, for, from the consortium, which we try to change, but at this point, it's all internal effort. So the current... Uh, uh, focus um, for the consortium is addressing uh, phenotypic, uh, genotypic variations and genetic modifiers. We have patients in the same family. Uh, mom is running a marathon and she has the disease while the two kids um, uh, are barely walking. So it is in, even in the same family, there's a large variation. We need to find what are the reasons. And maybe learning insights from the genetic variation can help us to get some treatment. Um, there's a gene discovery, but it's still there are 6% or 10% patients have no genetic findings. There's basic research going on and animal models, such as uh, our neighbor's Jackson Laboratory, developed a lot of animal models for different uh, genetic causes. There's also an educational part and a fellowship, and uh, uh, improves uh, and makes all of the sites clinical trial readiness is one of the other important factors. Um, just briefly, I finish up with the exciting recent discoveries that may totally change the treatment of, spinal mass, uh, of uh, uh, CMT. Um, they are gene editing studies from patient cells and, um, that try to approach the uh, gene editing and fixing abnormalities in the or genome. Um, there are um, RNA-based uh, therapies, oligonucleotides, uh, downregulate, um, for example, the uh, overexpressed uh, PMP22 and CMT type 1A. There's an upregulation of compensatory molecules and CMT type 2A, uh, of which there's a, a similar mitofusion molecule that it looks like that upregulation, that molecule can be therapeutic. And there's a new gene therapy effort to express neurotrophic factors that are promoting the health of the, of the neurons. And I, I would finish here. Thank you very much.